I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 26. Welcome to the 26th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Hi to everyone listening, and thanks for taking the time to check the podcast out. As always, I've got to say a big thanks to everyone who's been getting in touch. If you want to get in touch, got something to say, any suggestions for the podcast, just email me, vibronics at gmail.com. The best way to find out about Life in Dub and listen back to any of the older episodes is to go to the all-new website, lifeindub.com. Finally, it's mobile-friendly, and at last the website is living in the 21st century. It's part of a whole new vibronics.co.uk website. And any of you that missed one or more of the Gold Disc Classics 7-inch reissues on Scoops Records might want to check out the store on the new website, because all four titles are back in stock for a short while. They will also be on Bandcamp soon. But for now, check the new web store and grab them while they're still around. This week, I want to talk a bit about this podcast. You see, this episode will be the last of the year as I take a short break for the holiday period. But fear not, all regular listeners, Life and Dub will be back in early 2021 with a load of new interviews and episodes. I've got some great guests lined up for you all, so stay tuned. But after one year of Life and Dub, it seems like a good time to reflect on my first year of podcasting. I have to say, I've really enjoyed it. I've definitely been surprised by how many people listen to it and how many people are prepared to take the time to listen to two people talk for an hour with no music or any showbiz gimmicks. The original plan was to conduct most of the interviews face to face, but of course, COVID put a stop to all of that. So I had to find new ways of hooking up remotely, sometimes with people I'd never met before, as well as with a big gang of old friends and associates. But I was determined to keep going and not to stop. And so many people have told me how comforting it's been to hear from their favourite artists, elector, sound system. So at the end of this year, I was asking myself, what have I learned from these 26 interviews? And I have to say that probably the main thing is that nobody lives their life in dub alone. Especially at the beginning, every guest has talked about crucial people around them. Many of them not known to any of us. All the guests talk about people that didn't go on to be well-known or successful in the reggae world, just people that shared a passion for the music and the culture. I think we often see successful people in the music world on a bit of a pedestal, when really we're all supported by people around us, without whom none of us would ever have gone on to achieve what we have. So I've got to big up all those unsung heroes that play vital roles in the world of dub and reggae. This week, my guest is Brinsley Ford. Brinsley has played such a key role in the reggae and dub world. He starred in the film Babylon, without doubt one of the best movies ever made, and a film that most of us will have watched over and over again. He was frontman and voice of Aswad, who took reggae music onto global superstardom in the 80s, rubbing shoulders with the likes of Prince and U2. And before all that, he was hanging out with Bob Marley and the Whalers when they were living in London in the late 70s. We hear about all this stuff during this really interesting conversation. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So, Brinsley Ford, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice. Of course, we haven't seen each other for quite a while, so it was great when I got the vibe from you. Great. Yeah, last time was back when you were doing your Six Music thing, is that right? Six Music, yeah. That was... uh... I don't even want to think about the date. It was what we say back in the day. Absolutely. Well, we'll come on to that in a bit because I'd like to kind of move through things sort of kind of chronologically and just kind of take a bit of a look at your sort of uh, 
illustrious past. I mean, done so many things. We'll obviously we'll touch on what we can, but when you've done as many things as you have, then you know, hard to fit it all in. Nice of you to say that. I just hope I remember. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> well, the first question is the same on all of my interviews, which is this kind of a special track question where I, I ask the guest to name a, a track that's really significant, important, maybe something that made you think or act or like live your life differently. When you, when you look back and think, you know what, that tune really kind of changed things. I'm wondering if you've got a tune like that you want to tell us about. Well... To be honest, Steve, there's many. Um, there's absolutely, oh gosh, I mean, I, I, can I could just give you a, a, a few of them? Yeah, and as then many I'll as you want. The one that really, okay. Well, I remember being, watching the TV. I was watching the TV, a black and white TV, and I think his name was Brian Matthews. He came on the screen and he said, and now for something totally different. It's the Beatles. And they started with, woo! And I, this is just a moment from my youth that I never forgotten this moment of, of, of that moment when I heard the Beatles for the first time. And what, what sort of impression did it have on you? I don't, I can't say it had an impression. This is why I said, can I name a few things that have stood out? Um, obviously, growing up in the UK, we had all the English things. We had all the, the, the stuff coming from America. Um, you know, Stax, Tamil and Motown, had all of that. But um, I remember the Beatles. I remember Max Romeo's Let the Power Fall, because this was the time that kind of I started to to question and, 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 and want to learn about uh, what is now my way of life. That's mm -hmm. the, the Rastafarian way of life. So that was one of the the tracks that probably influenced me more than I can say the Beatles did. Mm -hmm. um, then you had Big Youth and you had Uroy um, and, of course, Bob Marley and the Wailers. And, mm -hmm. But one thing that I would say changed my life, one track that I would say changed my life, a good friend of mine bought a Pioneer uh, hi-fi set. And this was an amazing hi-fi. They were the lick back in the day. 15-inch speakers, okay? I mean, this was the bee's knees. And I remember sitting in his house, it was in Kilburn, and I listened to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And this is a totally true story. I got to the end of the album, I took the, the headphones off, and I said, I'm going to form a band. It's going to be the best band in the world. <laughs> and the three people that were there, they laughed and they laughed and they laughed. I mean, I'm really thankful that I have lived to see them sort of, they didn't fully apologise, but they acknowledged. So, yeah, I think I'd have to go with Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, because that, for some reason, inspired me and gave me the push to do what I'd been thinking about doing. Well, that kind of mix of, like, having really accessible, like, soul songs, but these, like, lyrics which are absolutely, like, to the point as well is, like, that's, like, a killer combination. So the music kind of seduces you in, and then the words are like, bang, this is what I'm saying to you. Yeah, I think that that album is social comment, and that, I think 
You know, I, I, I had met Bob Marley and the Whalers earlier on, so I was conscious I was beginning to think of uh, the Rastafarian way of life. Obviously, you know, I'd been acting. So it was a, it was a pivotal moment in, in my life. It was like, okay, I had this, what seemed to be the career that I would, you know, I'd go down the path, I'd be an actor. But um, music won. Music nice. won, over, won me over. Well, going back a little bit before that then, I mean, like, you grew up in London, is that right? Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people will know you for your work as, a, like, a young actor. So I was wondering how, you know, how you become, like, a child actor. You know, you're growing up in London, and how, how does that all stuff come about? Well, I, I would say it was an accident, but I think that having, you know, my belief... Think that things are set, do you know, and you, you, the path that you're supposed to go, you don't know how it's going to happen. We mm-hmm. say father works in mysterious ways. Now, my younger sister, uh, she's always been dance crazy. Um, she's now a ballroom dancer. She's loved dancing from a very early age. And um, she went to a dancing school every Saturday morning. And I walked in there. My mother asked me to go and pick her up. And I was approached by the woman that ran the school. Her name was Flavia Pickworth. And um, she said, can you sing? And uh, I, I said, yeah, of course. And that's how it started. And, and she did lots of shows for charity. And she got me an audition for the Magnificent Six and a Half with the Children's Film Foundation. Yeah, I remember Children's Film Foundation. That was a Saturday morning pictures. You come along on Saturday morning. That was before television, before children's just, just television. Just sort of just being in the right place at the right time, just introduce you yeah, to that whole I, world. I, 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 I think basically, I think, that, you know, you've got a path that you're supposed to, to, to walk along. And I think that, yeah, I can, I can say it's, it's an accident. But that building was also the very first place that I ever played reggae to, a, to an audience. So uh, it was a Jewish hall called Bet Beryl Hall in the bottom of Wilsdon. Uh-huh. And uh, at the time when Bob Marley and the Whalers were staying in London, they actually came to, uh, to back up, well, not back up Johnny Nash, I said that wrong. They were supposed to be the support for Johnny Nash. Uh, Bob had been hired to, as a songwriter, Guava Jelly and tracks like that. Um, and they stayed in this house in the circle in Neasden. And uh, I believe there was a problem with their work permits. So for lots of the gigs, they had to sit it out. They had no instruments in the house. So I had taken my guitars and guitar amps uh, over to the house and we would jam and we would play. And this club that was in the same Barrel Hall, uh, run by, his, uh, his name was George, he had asked them to do a show. And everyone was, was there that night to see Bob Marley and the Whalers. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. And the Cimarons had already set their stuff up. And they said, oh, well, you know, we don't really want to play. And um, I myself, Fal, and someone else, I can't remember who played bass, it could be Paul Dawkins, but we got up and played a, 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 a track 
And that was the first place I'd ever played reggae music to an audience. So uh, kind of a little bit spooky there, do you know what I mean? And how, how did you learn music? I mean, what, what got you interested in singing and playing and writing? I mean, how, how did that all start? Well, it started really from an early age. I kind of, I believe... I was musical. My mother said, I, you know, the only way you could keep me quiet, she'd have to turn the radio on. Um, now, I had or started piano lessons at an early age and I moved to Neesden and uh, it was my first piano lessons with someone called Banks, Mr. Banks. And I had been chosen as the wicketkeeper for the school cricket team. Mm -hmm. This was in Wickham. Actually, also in that team was Michael Gatton, who became the, obviously, the, the, the English cricket legend captain. that he became. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so I was wicketkeeper. I think I got all padded up and ready to go on. And I kept looking at the time and I kept looking at it. And it came a moment of decision. And, uh, well, history's history. Michael went on to be captain of England. I went on to be a musician because I left. I took the pads off and went to the piano lessons. So that was the end of my cricket career. Well, I think for all us, like, Aswad fans and Brinsley fans, you made the right decision then, definitely. So well, oh, well thank done. you. <laughs> I, I guess you, you kind of wanted to pursue music. If you're talking about forming a band of people and playing music is it like is it is it something you had like an ambition to do did you want to, did you want to do it and take it far and get involved well to, to to be honest i think i had been doing i was working in the film industry and it was it was really difficult if you can imagine yeah, what's it like what's it like being young and famous and on tv i mean like double deckers and stuff well, I, mean... I don't think no i think it was a different time mm -hmm. i think it was a different time we missed it by probably 10 or 20 years to be totally honest because um i mean the double deckers was on tv in 1970 okay so at that time there was no there just seemed to be no hope for black actors you know, you, you know, if you wanted to do something, if you wanted to write, you then had to get someone to finance it. Mm -hmm. And there were no, there were no directors. There was nothing. I think you, the names, you could name them on one hand, Sidney Portier. Um, so I was facing a situation where as a child actor, and you have to realise that child actors in the cinema usually are a lot older yeah. because you have someone that looks younger, but obviously they're old enough to be able to, to understand and yeah, to take relate direction and, and stuff and like take yeah. directions. Okay. So you're finding, I'm learning about the Rastafarian way of life. I'm looking for direction. I want to find something that will be my my path. And in music, I could take that to its entirety. I could book a studio, I could record it, mix it, and if I wanted, I could put it out, you know, press my own records. And that appealed more to me than sitting in, in Never Neverland and, and, and what would happen. Mm -hmm. There was 
no, I mean, the, and that was even later when you started to get things like uh, Shaft and things coming out of America. So you literally saw no way that you could progress, even as a young person, to progress as a black actor. You just saw that, that oh. there's just no chance. It's not going to happen. Uh, well, it was very limited. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I believed it wouldn't happen, but I believed instead of me sitting there, I mean, either, either I would have had to have gone to America, but I believed that music... There was an opportunity in music, and because of the culture I was learning, it gave me it gave me the vehicle and it gave me the opportunity to voice mm-hmm. my feelings. And this was it. This was the whole thing of Aswad. We were we were singing from a Brit, black British point of view because we didn't know Jamaica, we didn't know America, we knew England. Mm-hmm. And th- it had to be that story. That had to be where our story came from. So th- in all, I just had or saw more of an opportunity in music than I did in um, in the film world. Can you talk about, um, you know, coming into the faith of like Rastafari and the movement and how, how did that happen? I mean, how, how did you kind of get drawn into, into Rastafari? Um, I think as in that time, we started to get more and more uh, songs, like I mentioned before, uh, Max Romeo, um, Big Youth. Uh, we were hearing it on record mm-hmm. and it, opened our eyes and we wanted to search, we wanted to find out. I mean, the very first time I remember going over to the circle to where Bob and the rest of the whalers lived, um, Delroy, rest in peace, a very good friend um, who's no longer with us, he um, himself and I had a dispute over something and we sat with Bunny Whaler for hours and, you know, we reasoned and talked and this was... This was how it progressed. Mm-hmm. We were able to talk with people and find out. And fortunately, we, we had trips to Jamaica where we could sit and talk with people there. We were much more exposed to the commercial aspects of it than maybe someone in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we could kind of see pitfalls and things that were happening probably before people there could see it. And what was it like hanging out with, like, Bunny Whaler back then? Because obviously it's quite a while ago, so, you know, sort of powerful and important person. You have, all the way along, you have people who have inspired you, who you have admired, and, you know, you have a moment in your time where you've been fortunate enough to have a conversation, to, you know, talk about something, and... Usually, I think for a person in that situation, if they meet and speak with someone that has like uh, views or understanding, I'll I'll give you a a funny quick story. Um, I remember I was at, a good friend of mine worked for Prince's Management, okay? And um, so if there was shows, I would go to the show and I would know where the after parties were and I'm, I'm a big fan of Prince. So I remember going to see him in Tottenham Court Road at an after-show party and Misha Paris, he handed the mic to Misha Paris. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
and she just blasted. It was um, no satisfaction, I think. But he was like, wow. Anyway, there was a secret party that was going on, which I knew. And when I went into Ireland, they were all excited because they were, Prince had asked to hear some tracks from Misha. And jokingly, I said to them, oh, listen, Prince and I are, are just like that. And we had just actually gone to Paisley Park and recorded with uh, Dave and Bobby Z for a track for the film, um, Old Man on Campus or something like that. But we'd recorded this track. So we'd been to Paisley Park. Anyway, because it was a, a secret party, I said to them, I will let you know when I get there where it is, which at the time I had a phone in the car. So I went out to the car. I spoke to the... Um, the security when I came back in. And luckily, because they had worked with us at several times, I knew, you know. So I said, look, the girls who sent Misha's tape to Prince, they're going to be, they're coming, they're going to be a guest of mine, mm -hmm. so can you let them in? So they arrived, right? And now there's this whole thing going on. They're like, oh my gosh, you are serious. And before I could say, no, it was, I get a tap on my shoulder and it's one of Prince's bodyguards. And he takes me over to Prince. He says, Prince wants to have a word. First thing Prince said was, look, what, um, what's this about Misha? So I explained. And then I said to him, listen, I have to tell you, I'm in love with Studio Two in Paisley Park. To that, Prince just suddenly just became <laughs> not Prince ice. anymore. It was like <laughs> a musician. Do you know what I mean? And he said, oh, man, that's my favourite studio. I, I moved that from wherever. I think that was probably his first little, it was his little studio and he moved it to Paisley Park. And we ended up just chatting and chatting for hours because we were on the same, the same thing. And then obviously, you know, I said, oh yeah, we've just been there with Dave and Bobby Z. And then I said, look, can I bring the girls over to come and say hello? He said, no man, come on. So there I go, <laughs> not arm in arm with Prince, but <laughs> together over to chat, you know, with the girls. But this is what I mean. I think if you meet people who, they're, you know, they are your whatever. You, you, you're inspired by these people. You really like them. But if they suddenly open a situation and find that it's a fellow musician. Well, one person that's like, because it's, you know, the main sort of focus of the stuff I've done in my life is like sound system and kind of that kind of scene is like, and it, in this podcast series is the name Jar Shaka comes up as the kind of, like the father of the scene, really. And obviously, you know, way back in the day, you were working with Shaka and kind of, um, I'm wondering what, what that experience, what, what it was like back in those days. I mean, this is what I mean. Again, it was someone that we admired, Shaka Sound, because he was, I mean, he, he pushed the envelope. He did. In, in dub as we know it nowadays, he pushed that envelope in modern, in modern dub. So even back then, did it, did it seem like that he, he had something and the sound had something? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, if you remember Shaka dances, there was dancing and dancing and people were leaping to the ceiling. It was, do you know what I mean? It was a different vibe. And because he admired what we were doing, it was, listen, I want a dub of that. Mm -hmm. But there again, I think one of the early uh, situations with Shaka, Shaka obviously was uh, in Babylon. Well, of course, yeah. And uh, the story goes that we, when we had done the dub, 
and the dub hadn't been finished because I was working in the studios in the daytime and then going, that's the film studios in the daytime, and then go into the studios at night. And so we worked all night to work on this. I remember where we filmed the, filmed the scene in the garage, in the lockup garage, where we played the dub for the first time. With the sound, and yeah, every, yeah, yeah. Everyone's dancing. We didn't have any music. To show off your acting skills there. We didn't have any music. I had to recall it, and I went, I'm going... I'm going, da, 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 mm, 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 mm. and everyone just jumped on it. I mean, it was an incredible set of actors that worked on Babylon. And as Martin Stellman uh, noted, he said, that generation of actors never really moved on. It was the young actors who went to America. Well, the thing about Babylon is that, like, especially again, you know, in the kind of dub and sound system scene, is it's like, it's the film, it's the foundation, and it's so timeless. And I've been lucky enough to be all around the world with my music, and, I, and people talk about it, they play it at sessions. It's really like, it is the legendary movie. And did you have any sense of how important it was when you were making it? Because, I mean, no one's seen anything like it before or since, I think. No, no, I, I, I would say no. Not for the fact that 40 years after, it's still held in as high esteem all around totally, the world. I mean, totally. myself and Dennis were in America. I mean, it, it's, I would be lying to say, I mean, just at that time, it was not, you know, I mean, at that time, we didn't even think that Bob Marley would become the legend that Bob Marley is. He was always a legend to us but worldwide probably the best songwriter of this century. I mean, a, a good friend of mine who played with American rock guitarists, um, he was the bass player, and there was all these different American legends, and they, he said they'd go to the bus in, at night and someone would play, and they'd go, no, man, I don't like this rock, or no, 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 I don't. The only thing that they would put on that would satisfy everyone was Bob Marley and the Wailers. So... If we're thinking 19, early 1980s, I don't believe any of us were, uh, could say that we were aware of Bob's stance, you know, stature mm -hmm. in, in the music. So for 1980s, 1983, I mean, it didn't really get um, a proper distribution. Um, it was just, it just lived on. It just lived on and on and on. You couldn't keep it down. And it was played on TV, it was played on TV, and it, it just kept going. And when you look back at it now, I mean, what, what, what do you think when, when you see it or, 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 you know, you see a poster for it or think about it? I mean, what, what kind of thing goes through your mind now? Well, it's, it's, I think we appreciate the fact that we were part of it. Um... That is, is, you know, there's a lot of respect and for the, the fact that lots of people say, look, this inspired me, this gave me this, I felt this, this happened when I listened to this. Just, you know, like music that you've made and people come up and go, oh man, I remember when I heard that first and I met my wife to, when I was listening to this or mm -hmm. I was at your dance and this happened. So, you know, I think we, we give thanks that we have made people's lives, you know, that a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an incredible thing to be part of. And obviously, you know, you mentioned the word Aswad earlier on, but also talked about, you know, the whole experience of being 
like a sort of British perspective on things. And like, you know, for sort of younger listeners and people who are sort of, because I get quite a lot of people who are, what they like about the podcast is is learning stuff about things that happened long before they were like, sometimes even born, but certainly before they were like into music and stuff. And how, how was things in the 80s? I mean, what, what was it just, like? Just, just just before we move to that, you know, like now you could do like 80s shows and things were songs of the 80s. And I remember at one point thinking, these kids that are there, they could not have been born when this music was playing. That's true. But then there was a moment of realisation. We all say that the music that we aspire to in our teens, right, and onwards as our music. But the reality, the true backdrop of their life is the music that our parents played. Mm-hmm. I remember one day being blown away by the voice of Sam Cooke. It was, darling, you send me, okay? And I went, I went out, bought an LP, uh, Greatest Hits of Sam Cooke. And I remember playing this al- album and I could sing every song off of it. And I thought, but hold on. How do I know all these songs? It's in the background all my, those early years. Uh, all those early years, my father played it on the tape. He had all of them. Sweet 16, he had the lot. So although kids are not born in that time, the music that their parents played is the first music that has really hit your brain and made you kind of either love music or whatever. That's, your, that's really the backdrop of your life. Mm-hmm. I know when we get older and we go, oh, yeah, I'm individual and I want to, you know, how many times have we kind of thought, our parents just haven't got any, you know, they just don't know what's going on. They really don't know. And then suddenly, a few years later, when you've got the responsibility and you're paying the bills, you're doing the same things your dad said and you suddenly stop and go, oh, yeah, okay, all right, you know, so... Yeah, and like listening to music like from before your time. I mean, I love stuff like Northern Soul as well as things like Bob Dylan or whatever. Albums that are recorded years before. You know, I was born in 1971, so stuff that was before I was born, I, I, I totally love. And being in music, you appreciate those things and, and appreciate the, the, the quality and, and the, the, the skill and the dexterity of the musicians and... and yeah, but going back to sort of Asword and stuff, I mean, what, what was it like, like forming Asword as, like, you know, y- young men kind of fired up and, like, you know, just wondering what, what the scene was like back then. There were, there were, we've got to say, you know, the Cimarrons, big, big, you know, enough respect to the Cimarrons. Mm-hmm. I travelled with them in the back of their van many times up and down the country. Um, uh, Dennis and Matumbi. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were bands were there. Yes, there were other bands, um, but the I think the truth of it was that you had bands that to earn they became the backing bands for the artists that would come from from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So. In doing that, I think their inspiration kind of was spread. 
I mean, yeah, um, to be to do their own songs, I'm, I'm not taking anything away. But one of the things that, I, you know, I had joined a couple of guys who were in Paddington and they were changing an old uh, travel agent to music. There was a music shop in there and um, I would do posters. I think the first name for the band was B and the Rebel Roadblock and draw the, I'd get the, the other side of the... Um, the Rebel Roadblock, I, I like it. I'll make a note <laughs> you know of that. the old, you know that back in the day that, that things were advertised on these massive posters. So you know, I got those posters and I would draw that and I would say, yeah, I'm looking for a band because um, I had started writing. That was that was really what it was. And a good friend of mine that had gone back to Jamaica, uh, George Oban, one day he arrived at, at my house in Easton and said, look, I'm back. And I went, oh, great, we, because, you know, we need a keyboard player. And he said, no, 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 I'm playing bass now. So we would go there and we would jam all the tracks that, you know, I had been writing. And that's how it started. People would come and say, listen, you know, and we'd, we'd audition a drummer or, you know, then Donald came, uh, Drummy came, and I said to him, look, if you're playing with any other band, it's not going to work mm -hmm. because he was playing with Delroy Washington. He was playing with the uh, the Carnival Band, the Still Still Band, and luckily his cousin Rusi came in one day and said, "Hey, you should check my cousin. He plays drums." And George and I went down to Labrick Grove to the Carnival office, and we saw him playing. And that was like, "Listen, you got to come, um, Donald Courtney." Had been. I uh, went to school with Courtney, so we went to find Courtney. Uh, Tony Tony Gad had been there in the beginning, but we had so many different people. We had like three or four keyboard players, so he left and played with sounds until the situation where George um, left the band and Tony came in. Well, Tony came in just before that to play keyboards because Courtney had had said, "No, I've got to look after my family." Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's what happened. Um, Tony came in to play keyboards. When George left, Tony decided to play uh, well to play bass, and it was better because we had the rhythm section. I say, I mean, and, and did did you know that you had it? I mean, when you, when you got the unit formed and you you, you rehearsing, no, playing, I mean, did you think I you mean, know what we we, we know we, we there's something no, special here? No, 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 I don't think so. I think. It was the belief that, one, it's going to be a serious situation. This is going to be this band. So what happened when we started rehearsing and we started working, we didn't follow anyone else. Mm -hmm. We created us. It was us right from the beginning. Because it's okay. a British sound, isn't it? It's that kind of, you know, it's... Well, a, it's, I mean, you, 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 we've been influenced by everything. You know, I, I use the name, the Stones, the Beatles, everything. We, we were exposed to all of that. And then we had, you know, when we were going to school and we were taking Tony Scott, What Am I To Do Now? or Liquid, Liquidator or those tracks or Dave and Ansel Collins, we were taking them to school. Um, so our music was, you know, we took, we took a vibe, just like really the Wailers took a vibe from Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, mm -hmm. which is the same in all music. I remember playing in um in it, it was in wilsden at the old cinema and it was the gladiators reggae regulars and aswad 
Nice. That's a lineup. That is. Yep. Um, reggae regulars had just signed to CBS because we had left CBS and they had just signed to CBS. So there was no doubt that the gladiators would play first and it was like, okay, who's going to, you know, come on second. Anyway, we ended up going on first. And there was one moment when we were doing natural progression. And I had this idea and went over to Donald and I said, D, can you play this? And I went, bum, 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 da, 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 da. And he went, okay, sing it again. And I went, bum, 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 bum. And remember, this is while the show's going on, okay? <laughs> Live on stage. And Live on stage, and I turned to the audience and I went, You sing. And they went, Oh, you one more time. They went, And all of a sudden I went to Donald, Your turn. And he played a solo that was blinding. And of course it started with, and he just went off on this solo. And I remember when the gladiators came on, people were still shouting for Aswad, <laughs> Aswad. And one of the, the moments that really keeps that in my mind is I remember speaking to my father and we were talking and talking about, you know, whatever. And I said to him, you know, there was one moment where it really, you know, Aswad I think came to you know, people's attention. And I'm telling him about this thing and he went, and I'm going to get emotional now. He went, (laughs) I was there. He said, I was there. So my dad who worked in the railway for, I mean, the song Rainfall Sunshine is about my father and my mother, Mm -hmm. right? Rainfall Sunshine, snow's falling on the ground. My old man's gone working in the transport yard. And I knew that he must have taken time to come and to come and see that, and that was a moment that that will always, nice. um, yeah. yeah. And one other thing, while I'm while I'm on a run, most bands back in the day used four by twelve speakers for the singers. I mean, lots of people probably wouldn't understand that now, but that all the singers had was column speakers that could have probably four 12 inches in That's it. That's it. PAs aren't what they are. They right. weren't what PA. they are now. Right. All right. Now, I remember while we were rehearsing, we got a PA, we got a WEM PA. Um, I remember we had to go to near Kent to go and pick this PA up. And we actually had a, a, an old van that I remember broke down on the way. But anyway, we got it back. It wasn't a Didn't van, really know what... Uh, no, it was a, um, a Ford um, with the big kind ones, like the sound system van that yeah, he used yeah, years yeah. ago. The panel van kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, I remember we got it there and uh, we didn't really know how to use it. But anyway, we were doing a show and I believe it was Coxon. I, I, I can't honestly say. I think it was Coxon. Anyway, what happened back in the day when the band was playing, and remember we played a lot of dub, right? The sound systems would go, oh, yeah, enough of that, enough of that, and turn up. And they would drown the band out. Okay? So you couldn't hear the band. Mm -hmm. But this day, Chester, who was our sound engineer, turned up. And now you had a 
they were battling against the PA and they decided, no, <laughs> let them play. <laughs> and that, I think, was one of the big differences. When you came to hear Aswad play, it was like, I mean, they've said, Bob Marley took the studio on stage and Aswad took dub on stage. So you were hearing heavy bass, you were hearing, I mean, at that time I was using an echoplex, so you were hearing mm -hmm. echoes and it, we presented a different, a different moment on stage. It must have been amazing, like some, some of the early shows, because obviously, you know, in London, you know, I'm up here in Leicester and I've, I've said this almost on every single podcast. It's kind of, you know, I come from a place, I come from this countryside place in the east of England where nothing ever happened and... Leicester, bless it, I love living in Leicester, but it's certainly not like the capital of the world. Um, but in London, I guess back in those days, you were getting like, you know, it's the harbour of music, you're getting all sorts of stuff going on. But that's very true. But I think in those days, we were travelling. So suddenly we would be in Leicester, we would be in Bristol, we would be in Wolverhampton, in well, Birmingham. You've got to take it on the road. And, and so people were kind of hearing this. And what actually happened uh, when we did have the number one hit, you had women that were going to work and talking about Aswad and their senior staff were going, oh yeah, I know Aswad, they played at my university. Mm -hmm. And they're going, how do you know Aswad? But we, I mean, I think we've, we've played Cambridge, Oxford. We travelled more travelling in, in the UK than we probably did, like, to America. Um, so... And did you break out into Europe at all? I mean, especially in the early days. I mean, oh, yeah we, yeah, 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 we did, we I, did. I wonder I mean, what that was, European audiences were making of reggae back then, because it was kind of a new thing, really. But reggae has... You know, it surprises you, and you would know this. You'd go to places, and there you would have people who love reggae. I mean, I remember going to Koryakuen Hall in Japan, in Osaka, and we did our sound check, and we went back to the dressing room, and suddenly we heard this music playing. I said, that's, that's a record. Someone who had just come and said, no, it's a band. I said, no, man, that's a record. And we went out there, PJ and I think Cool Runnings their name was, there was these Japanese guys with beavers and toms and playing reggae music. Mm -hmm. You go to, 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 you know, Hawaii and you had Martha's Kitchen and guys were playing reggae. I mean, I remember going to, to Russia and it was a, a Greenpeace situation and, and I was with, with um, lots of different heads from you too, David Byrne, um, Peter Gabriel, lots of people. We were in the, in the airport and someone was banging on the window. And I turned to Hedge and I said, look, he's, he's calling you. And when he went, he went, no, and they pointed to me. And it was like, what, in Russia? But CBS, had released our tracks in Russia because obviously, you know, whatever. But so people in Russia kind of knew us. Okay. And because we were fortunate enough to be with companies that had distribution, even if they didn't sort of hone in on the, on, on the distribution, there would, music would escape to it. Like I met people in, in, in Argentina who, you know, one guy came back with the album and like everybody listens to the album. They all know the album, but it started from one album that was brought back from a journey, mm -hmm. you know? So... But talking about you know, reggae, reggae, stuff, reggae music, re of... reggae music, 
Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say reggae music is a phenomenon and we can't explain it. We can't say why. But from that little island of Jamaica, you know, it has traveled worldwide. It's got the most crazy business going on. Do you know, I mean, hip hop is basically reggae that was taken and, 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 and produced in, 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 in American form. But, you know, you've got millionaires in, in that but reggae remains where it is. And it's true. I and I are the roots and you don't see the roots. Mm -hmm. You see the fruits, you see the leaves, you see the branches, but the roots... Yeah, no, it's true, it's true. Well, the the question I was going to ask was about sort of creativity because obviously, you know, the journey from starting as were those kind of early days play and then obviously up to sort of, you know, real big international stardom. Is How do you keep on top of it? How do you keep on the ball? How do you keep making the next one bigger and better because it's, it's it's not easy to do that kind of stuff i think i have to say for myself i've been very fortunate i remember you asked me a question early on about you know how did it feel being a, a tv star when the double deckers was out mm-hmm. now if that had been 10 or 20 years later i think i probably would have been this conceited person who has that mentality of being a celebrity. Because nowadays, that's what most people want to do. They want to be celebrities. They're not into just playing music for the love of playing music. And I think we were fortunate enough to miss that. Yeah. So by the time that we got that notoriety, we were just the band playing music that we loved. And it was great to, 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 you know, think the pressure was eased up because we would be able to have hotels and the band could have decent hotels. And we loved it. And we were getting attention. We would go all around the world and there'll be people waiting to see us. We had number ones in Japan and in, you know, around the world. But, you know, we travel with a group of people that they will tell you they were some of the greatest times that they've spent because, you know, we traveled, we had fun, we laughed, we we just did what, you know, music I think is really about. We just went around the world playing music and just loving it. And how it. was it, you know, when by the time you become, you know, don't turn around, stuff like that. I mean, these are like huge, like era sort of defining hits and like, how, how was it How was it riding that kind of bus back then? Because it's like to be like a pop star, that's, you know... That's quite a crazy I think job. Because because we had come the and like most musicians that have done their apprenticeship. I mean, if you if you notice most of the artists of the sixties, yeah, they're mega stars, but they're all kind of just chilled. Mm-hmm. Because they did the they did their apprenticeships. And I, I I believe that by the time it came for us, we were you know, I mean, most young bands you see, and they're travelling with an entourage of people. Do you know what I mean? You, you never see them on their own and just going into the shop and, yeah, okay, someone says, oh, I love that, and you say, oh, thanks, man, and you go on your way. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, as soon as something starts happening, you've got an entourage of people, and someone comes up to say something, and they're sticking, no, 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 stand back, stand yeah, back. You're living like an Instagram so life or something. Y- do you know what I mean? It's I, I, it's just my feeling of of what the difference is with the old school artists and the new. I mean, one of the things that you one of the things that you do notice um, is that when you do you start off and you're in the VIP, 
And then when you get to that other level, you know, you get invited into the inner sanctum <laughs> and some things that go on in the inner sanctum. If you're like myself and you don't get into it, I just go, listen, love it. Thanks a lot. I'm, I, I don't deal with that. And so, you know, I think a lot of the, the trappings that you could get trapped in uh, for myself, I would say I avoided that because um, in anything, you know what, what the music business is like. You can, you can lead on to harder drugs and, and, and what have you. Mm -hmm. So do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's just how, and for myself, I had had that experience before with the acting. Yeah. So when it came with the music, think, I was you grounded. Think that, you think that helped then? Well, yeah, I was grounded. I had, I had six brothers and sisters. Do you know what I mean? And I, I was just, that was just a job, which is what it was in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You were going to work. So uh, that was it. I, I think I was I was very grounded in that time. The thing that always gets me when I, when I sort of think back to that sort of time, comparing it to now, is is the sort of the power of reggae music and what a, what a huge thing it, it, you know parts of it had become in the eighties and kind of you can't imagine that now. You can't imagine like a reggae band having like big hits and being on the telly and being alongside like pop artists or whatever. You just can't imagine that now. Uh, I, I believe, I believe it's in the making. I believe it's in the making. Um, it, it's just in every, in every time there is pieces of music, there is artists that move a generation. And I don't see no reason for it not to be that a reggae song hits the charts and just busts it wide open. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, it's totally possible, mm -hmm. totally possible. So um, the music industry has become a lot smaller. There's a lot less people in the game and it's very concentrated on the distribution and you know, the, the, the way it's manifested. So, yeah, it, 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 it will happen. Mm -hmm. It will happen because I think, especially in the UK charts, it just needs the right sound to hit the ears of, of everyone. And, 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 you know, everybody knows reggae. Mm -hmm. It's not like the time where, you know, you'd speak to someone and, and you'd say reggae and they'd go, Yeah, what, what? is it? Yeah. But that's what always kind of so, amazes me is how people do know it and it's so widely loved, yet there hasn't been that kind of... Like, like you know, may, maybe the surge is yet to happen. It's like, you know, like, like, like the surge again, if you like, of kind of just it being back in the mainstream and kind of something that young people are listening to and it's like, you know, I, it'd, be, it'd be nice to see again, definitely. Yeah, it, it's, I, I, as I said, I think it's just time. It's just time for someone to have that edge that, I mean, it's accepted now, but the edge, the storyline that, that people can gravitate to, that's all that's really needed. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 that's totally possible. And it will come. It will come. Um, and now you're able to do a lot more promoting and distributing via um, via the internet. So the pressures of being kept or held back are far kind of less than they would have been back in the day. Yeah, I think people are kind of 
theoretically at least like in control of their own shit a bit more these days well it, it's yeah we've got a we've got a bigger understanding and I, I i sincerely believe that in england these were some of the the things that we helped to teach uh, our teachers because being dealing with record companies dealing with the business firsthand uh you know they could watch and see what was happening. We were distributed in places. I mean, if you go to certain places, Canada and stuff, they'll tell you that they were inspired by Steel Pulse and Aswad. Mm -hmm. And that's because we had the distribution. So do you know what I mean? Nowadays, I think you'll find that reggae is creeping into different areas and it's been promoted Maybe not as reggae, but that vibe has been used. Mm -hmm. um, and you have artists who are not reggae artists, but it's it's put out there, mm -hmm. you know? So, but I, I sincerely believe, to answer your question, that, yeah, it's only a matter of time. Reggae is going to be, um, you know, years ago we were worried about being commercial, but commercial is just being, you know, in the forefront. Yeah, taking it to more it. people. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's such an important role to do is to take it. You know, you talked a lot about Bob Marley at the beginning and it's like, you know, it, the, the way that like Bob Marley and the Whalers music brought people into reggae. So if you wanted to stick at Bob Marley, fine. But if you wanted to start to dig deeper and look into the lyrics that he's singing about or the, those kind of deep rhythms that are being played, then that's, that's like a doorway in. But if he hadn't been, if he hadn't been distributed... Yeah, no one would know. ...commercially, no one would know. And so what, and what, what kind of stuff do you get up to these days? Obviously, you know, creative person, so what, what kind of stuff keeps you busy these days? Well, obviously, um, I've been here out of England for, for a little while, um, I was supposed to play the Ostruda Reggae Festival uh, last year, but sadly, because of the lockdown, yeah. they did have a festival, but they used Polish bands. So it was great to go out there and hear uh, Polish bands and hear sound systems. And on the Sunday, I, I DJed on the Sunday evening out on the, on the pier. It's a nice spot, Ostruda, because it's the one by the lake, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Really beautiful. What I have been doing here is is finishing off my album. So there's a new album in the works. So you're still um, obviously writing and recording. And oh, oh, definitely, definitely. And as I say, there's a new album which I'm I'm really really uh, feeling proud of. I think when you're in a band, you've got all the all these other people who help to make decisions, and and then when you've got to do it on your own, it takes a little time to get to the point where you're going, okay, these decisions are mine. And I think this is what's happened with this album. Um, it's in mixing stages now, so uh, it's not going to happen before next year because there's no point putting an album out in, in uh, November. Well, when you're ready for the Vibronics mix, just send the files over, Brinsley. You've got it. You've got it. You've got it, definitely. And that's the joy about it, being able to get different people to touch and put their own spin on it and I love doing that so that's that's without a doubt there will be a Vibronics mix hey, we're ready for that we'll say we've been talking a while now so what, what I'll do is I'll sort of close it up with with the question that um that I ask all the guests at the at the end of the interview which is like I've got my book of dub which you know it's really getting quite big now a lot of names in it and I write everyone's name in it right. so I write Brinsley Ford and 
And I wonder what you would want written next to your name, just something to be remembered by, something associated with your life in reggae. I think I'd have to say, along with the other members of Aswad, they created the new chapter of Dub. Nice. Well, you know that's one of my favourite dub albums ever. I think we spoke about it when we did that interview yeah, on Six Music yeah. years ago. Is it's like new chapter in dub because it's so deep and kind of you know, and it's like I guess it's like a it's a like a different UK take on your, your King Tubby scientist dub from Jamaica. And it's like okay, now uh, this I think is everything this. everything about it just fell into place. The music and at that time, you know, back in the day, we loved the album covers which is something that, I, that kids don't really have now, but a lot of people are getting into the, the, the vinyl. Mm -hmm. But the album cover reminded me of that moment when I got my hands on to Catch a Fire. Mm -hmm. And it was like, wow, there was this album when you flicked it up, it was a Zippo lighter. And I think new chapter of dub, when people saw that and then heard the music, it was, it's, it was just a marriage made in, you know, well, it, it lives on because, like, it gets you. You must have seen it on a million flyers and campaigns ever since, just yeah. because, like, you know, yeah. I'm sure it's annoying people don't get credited for it, but it means well, that people only know, choose to use that image if they like it. It's, it's a wonderful yeah. image. Yeah, yeah, truly, truly. So sometimes, you know, you have to give to receive, and what we've received has been oh, a million fold. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's lots of situations that I can complain and says, look, we haven't been paid for this, this hasn't happened. But then again, the respect and the love that we have from the music love in public, you know, no money can no money can buy you that. So we give nice. thanks for that. Nice, great, great. Well, Brinsley, thank you very much for joining me on the Life in Dub podcast. Been a pleasure, Steve. And uh, yeah, just enjoyed it and look forward to seeing you guys, you guys to do the, the dub of the new album. Um, yeah. Stay, stay safe, stay well, and keep playing the dub. Nice. Thanks for joining me and Brinsley for this 26th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Don't forget to go to the new website, lifeindub.com, if you want to listen back to any of the previous episodes, or if you want to pick up any of the last remaining Gold Disc Scoops reissue series. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell people about it, help share it, help get these stories to more people. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you all again in the new year for a whole new season of the Life in Dub podcast. <laughs>